Grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there are some right there in front of you. And we're going to look at right at the end of chapter 11. We're going to go through chapter 12 this morning. So John 11, 55 through 12, verse 50. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a German theologian and pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you've uh, heard his story some. He studied theology at some of the highest levels uh, possible, but he wasn't content to be just someone who studied. He was desirous of living his life as a faithful Christian. And of course, this was very difficult to do at that time because this was during the rise of Hitler. It was not easy to be a Christian in Germany at that point, and in fact, Uh, many churches in Germany were getting on board with Hitler. In fact, many even equated Hitler with uh, the return of Christ, if you can believe that. Well, Bonhoeffer was not one of those. He was a faithful Christian, sought to live faithfully to Jesus. Well, at one point, Bonhoeffer was even brought over to America during the war. He was brought as a guest lecturer in a seminary. And was even given the opportunity to stay longer, to stay beyond his uh, allotted time. But his commitment to Christ meant that he was also committed to Christ's people, specifically in Germany. His brothers and sisters in Christ in Germany. And so he said this in response to the, the man who was asking him to stay. He said, I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. And so he got back on a boat and he went back to Germany. Bonhoeffer's commitment to Christ was exactly right because of who Christ is. In what Jesus Christ came to do in his life and death on this earth. It's right for Bonhoeffer to be committed to Jesus in this way. And it is right for you. It's not a fool's errand to be committed to Jesus Christ. But the reality is we have a hard time keeping this clear in our focus. We have a hard time fixing our eyes on Christ and keeping him as the center of our lives and the supreme treasure of our hearts, we have a hard time doing this. So many things often capture our heart. And if we're not careful, we find that even in the name of Jesus, we end up worshiping something other than Jesus and committing our lives to something other than Christ and his cause. We need to see Jesus for who he is for what he came to do specifically through his death. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning in our study. Here, here at the end of the first part of our study, we're coming to the end of this uh, John 1 through 12. We'll take a break for a few months and come back to the, the, the rest of John. But we're stopping here because this is the final moment, the, the end of Jesus' public ministry in John's gospel. And it ends with him explaining what he came to do through his death. And so my hope for you this morning, whether you're a believer or not, and if you're not a believer, we're really glad you're here this morning. My hope for you is that you will see Jesus for who he is, 
and that you will commit your life to him no matter the cost. First, we're going to see that Jesus is worthy of worship. If you're taking notes, you can write that down as the the first point we'll consider. that Jesus is worthy of worship. This goes from verse 55 of chapter 11 down to verse 19 of chapter 12. And this section begins, this part of John's gospel begins with John kind of uh, creating a mood, creating an atmosphere for you as a reader. So look at verse 55 of chapter 11. Now, the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? So there's this air, there's this atmosphere of anticipation, people asking each other, is Jesus going to come? But there's another part to it as well, verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. And so we feel some tension there. We feel this anticipation here in this final time that Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem. But he's not there yet. He's not there yet. Because Jesus comes on his own time. Uh, Jesus, as God, as the Son of God, he is not submissive to the will of man. And so in verse 1 of chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So Jesus isn't in Jerusalem yet. He's on his way. He'll get there when he's ready. It's not quite time yet. So he's returned to his friends And you'll notice that John refers to Lazarus. He's not just Lazarus. He's Lazarus, the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. You remember that? That's kind of what I think what John is doing there is reminding us who this Lazarus is. And he says it several times in this chapter. Jesus is in complete control. And this is is important because what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to prepare his disciples and you, the, the, the reader, and then you, the hearer this morning, for this death that's coming. He wants you to understand what he came to do. He prepares us for his death. And it comes, the first indication of this comes in this interesting scene with Mary. As she, the sister of Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, she comes with just this humble, contrite, heartfelt act of worship. As she brings this uh, expensive bottle of perfume that probably represents her, her dowry. It was probably something she inherited. It's worth a lot, almost a, a, a year's worth of wages. Verse 3 tells us, Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, which is an interesting eyewitness detail. John was there. He remembers how powerful the aroma was. Mary represents this fact that this Jesus, he is worthy of worship. He's worthy of getting down at his feet and, and giving him homage and giving him honor. And so Mary, in this case, stands in stark contrast. She's a, a clear contrast to Judas, who starts fussing at her. That's the, the biblical word, fussing. Nobody, nobody caught that one. Or maybe it just wasn't that funny. Verse 4. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But John, the writer, John knows the details. Verse 6, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. So, so Judas says this, and he's stark contrast to, to Mary. Mary's at the feet of Jesus. Judas is complaining about this waste. But Jesus won't allow that. Jesus rebukes Jesus, uh, rebukes Judas, and in the process, he gives us this first indication of what he's about to do. Verse 7. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. That's some fascinating words. This this was a a party, basically, that was being thrown for Jesus, a feast for him, an expression of thanks for raising Lazarus from the dead. And suddenly Jesus is talking about death? Keep in mind, Jesus is only about 33 years old. He seems to be healthy. He's not sick. They don't have any reason to think he's about to die. But he starts talking about his burial. And not only that, but look, he, he says about himself, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Well, that would be, that'd be a pretty arrogant thing to say. You know, just imagine somebody, somebody saying, you know, one of your friends, family members, you know, you're not always going to have me around. You know, okay, so, and your point is, but not with Jesus. Jesus, for Jesus to say that it would be arrogant, it would be self-exalting if he was not the remarkable, wonderful, unique person that he is, the Son of God in the flesh who's about to die. So I think we just take from this just a, a, a picture certainly of learning from Jesus and what he means by his death, but just to, to see the contrast between Mary and her heartfelt act of worship and Judas and his idolatry. And we're called to follow Mary's example here. She doesn't fully understand Jesus. She, I don't even think she truly, uh, there, there's no indication that she knows that she's anointing him for burial. She does something more than she understands. She just knows she believes in Jesus And she thinks he's worthy of worship while Judas is sitting there so caught up in the idolatry of his heart that he can't even see the worth of Jesus in this moment. John continues. He takes us to the next day where the anticipation for Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. So the scene was in Bethany. Now he shoots back over to Jerusalem. The scene continues. The anticipation for Jesus' arrival And look what happens beginning in verse 12. The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Wow. This is remarkable. This is quite a scene. This is the... Uh, the pilgrims, not the American pilgrims, uh, the, the, the Jewish pilgrims making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem as they did uh, for, the, for the Passover festival. They're on their way. They're coming from all different places. They're, they're coming a long way, many of them. And as they get close to the city, closer to entering into the heart of the city, the crowd around Jesus begins to do something remarkable. They take these palm branches, they... Um, 
we, we find out later that they are also, or in other Gospels, that they also threw their, their uh, coats down, their, their garments down before Jesus. An act of worship. And what are they calling him? They're calling him the King of Israel. They think something's about to happen. They think something is uh, exciting, is coming with Jesus. In other words, there's a sense in which we know that these people think that Jesus is the Messiah. But what we have to understand is that they don't really understand what that means. They think Jesus is coming to overthrow Roman rule. They think that this is a political and even a military entrance. And maybe it would be, except for the way that Jesus enters. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written... Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, Jesus, again, doesn't take his cues from people. Jesus doesn't need human beings to tell him how he is to fulfill his mission, to come and be a military victor. No, he has something else in mind. He comes to bring peace. And he does this in a humble way. I I don't think it's much stretch of the imagination to picture a sharp difference between a a well-bred war horse and a donkey. You know, just picture that in your mind. The the sense of nobility and prestige is very different for the two horses or the two animals. And that's the whole point. If you go back and you read uh, in Zechariah 9, which this is uh, what this quote comes from, The whole setting is the picture of a king coming into the city, but coming on a donkey symbolizing humility and symbolizing peace. In Zechariah 9, it specifically says that this king will bring peace and righteousness, not war and strife and unrest. After all, isn't that the kind of kingdom that people really want to live in? A kingdom full of peace and righteousness? Who, who really wants to live in a kingdom that is always at war? Jesus is a king who brings peace, who brings righteousness, and he does this on his own terms as we are continuing to see. It will be through his death. But as often happened in Jesus' ministry, there is misunderstanding. There is confusion. It's first with his own disciples, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. So John kind of says, we didn't, we didn't get it then, at first. But then he skips ahead to the future. However, when Jesus was glorified, after he was raised from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So his disciples didn't understand. They didn't get the picture, nor, as usual, did the Pharisees. Look at verse 19. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So there's confusion, there's anticipation, there's just a lot going on as Jesus comes in to the city. But what Jesus is doing is he is bringing peace and righteousness. He's going to bring it about through his death and resurrection. And this is just a reminder to us, friends, to to look to Jesus and the kind of kingdom that he brings. To look and see that his kingdom 
It comes about through his means, his way of doing things. The Lord's work in the Lord's way. We have to be very careful that we don't look to earthly rulers, earthly leaders, earthly ways of bringing about what we want. Our ultimate hope is in the kingdom of God. We need to put first his kingdom and his righteousness. The the Bible tells us very clearly that that, uh, earthly kingdoms will pass away. Only the kingdom of God will endure forever. That's where we need to invest our hope. That's where we need to invest our, our time and our money and our efforts and our energy in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, that is where our hope needs to be. So we've seen that Jesus is worthy of worship. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus is worthy of imitation. Worthy of imitation. This comes from verses 20 through 36 of chapter 12. That excitement, that anticipation, the the buzz in the city that's going on, uh, it continues. And, And this time it comes through an unlikely group of people. Look at verse 20. Now, some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Curious. We don't expect this. We haven't heard anything about Greeks uh, at this point in John's gospel. He's not explicitly. We don't know exactly who they are. They could be uh, Greek-speaking people who have converted to Judaism. They could also just be Greek speakers, native Greeks, who are kind of curious about Judaism. And so they come to Jerusalem. They don't participate. They don't go in the temple because they're not, they're not Jews, but they're just kind of curious. They're interested. But at some point, they've heard about Jesus. They come to Philip. Philip uh, may have had some Greek background, and so... They see him as kind of a way to Jesus. And interestingly, Jesus, or, or Andrew and Philip, bring them to Jesus. I mean, I, I love their, their statement, Sir, we want to see Jesus. I pray that's true for you every day, that you want to see Jesus. Jesus responds to them. He doesn't brush them off. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not here for you people. And in fact, their arrival to see him sparks Jesus' declaration of something that we've been anticipating the entire Gospel of John. Look at verse 23. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Up to this point, every time we've heard Jesus mention the hour, he's said, My hour has not, or the hour has not yet come. Uh, early on, he even kind of rebuked his mother because she uh, was kind of rushing him, so to speak. Jesus said to her, my hour has not yet come, but now the hour has come. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, as 21st century Americans, we don't have the the same sort of intellectual uh, furniture, so to speak, we don't automatically think of the, the, the thing that these people would have, uh, would have most naturally thought of. 
or at least should have thought of. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a prophecy where Daniel sees a vision. And this is 500 years or more before Jesus. Daniel sees a vision. He sees God, the almighty, eternal God, the ancient of days is what he calls him. He sees him sitting on a throne and he sees one who he says is like a son of man. One, in other words, who is human in appearance. That's what Daniel sees in this vision that he doesn't understand. He just reports the vision for, for, uh, for us who have come since then. He records the vision and here's what he says in Daniel 7. Suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given, check this out dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Son of man, glory, And did you catch also every people, nation, and language should worship him? So you begin to see why this approach of the Greeks who want to see Jesus, those outside of the Jewish Jewish ethnicity coming to see Jesus. It's a picture of a fulfillment of what Daniel saw. Jesus is that son of man that Daniel saw. He will be the one to receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that will not pass away. And it will be for people from not just the Jewish people, but from every tribe and tongue and nation. The arrival of these Greeks sparks Jesus' declaration, the hour has come. But if you were there, if you were there in his presence that day and you heard what he says next, I think you would be baffled like you probably should have been. Look at verse 24. The next thing he says, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. See, Jesus turns from talking about glory to talking about death. In this picture, this parable of a grain of wheat. If, if the grain of wheat is just by itself, if it's alive, it, it's, it's only so useful. But if it falls to the ground, if it dies, it will go into the ground and it will plant itself and it will grow. It will produce more grain. Jesus indicates his death will be a fruitful death. So look, he's helping out his disciples. He's helping out even us who are here today learning about this. Jesus' death had an incredible purpose to bring about fruit, a harvest of souls, of souls, of living, breathing human beings who come into new life through his death. And so the glory of the Son of Man comes through his death. Stunning and startling. It it doesn't automatically 
makes sense to us. It's not intuitive, but it's true. He knows that the grain of wheat must die to bear fruit. And then he, he also acknowledges that this isn't going to be easy. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. That word for troubled is used uh, of water. In, in the original language this was written in. It's used of water in a storm. It, it, the, the water is troubled. It's stirred up. Now he says his soul is troubled. So this isn't going to be easy. And in fact, we see it in the rest of this verse, verse 27, a kind of summary of what happens later that, uh, that week in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's in agony and he's torn. He says, what should I say? Should I say, on the one hand, Father, save me from this hour. Father, save me from the suffering, the the, the death that awaits me, save me from your righteous wrath being poured out on me, the darkness, the separation that will come. Should I, should I say that? He wonders this aloud. But no, he, he says, no, here's what I'm resolved to do. But that is what, verse, the end of verse 27, that is why I came to this hour, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. He will experience this death because he knows what it will produce, a harvest, a harvest of souls. It will not be a pointless death. That's why he's resolved. At every moment of Jesus' existence as a human being on this planet, he was fixed on glorifying his father. That is the only way, humanly speaking, that he could say in the face of this death with what's ahead, Father, glorify your name. Because he really meant that. That's what he really wanted. And in the Lord's kindness, his father confirms that that's going to happen at the end of verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it throughout your whole ministry, Jesus, and I will glorify it again through your death and resurrection. God, in his great love, has willed to create a new people of God from the broken, sin-sick world that we live in. We were all made to be with God, to love him, serve him, obey with him. That was was what we were made for. Our, Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were set out to do that, but they failed. They chose to love themselves, to love their own way. And we have have all followed in their footsteps. But God in his kindness sent his son because he was going to get a people for himself, rescue a people from out of this broken, sin-sick humanity. And that had to come through the cross of Jesus Christ. He had to die. Otherwise, we who are sinful and unholy would have no No option, no ability ever to come into the presence of a holy and righteous God. But because Jesus came and died and was raised from the dead, everyone who repents and believes in him, who has faith in that grain that dies in Jesus, everyone who believes is saved, is rescued from the wrath of God. 
because Jesus glorified the Father's name by going to his death on the cross. And the Father was pleased with that. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. It's fascinating, though, because just like so many times in John's gospel, we find not faith, but confusion, misunderstanding. Verse 29, the crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So over and over again, Jesus taught, Jesus explained, I'm going to die and here, here's why. But they still don't understand. 34, the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They, they even understand that the lifted up thing, whatever that is exactly, isn't going to be very good. They, they, don't, they understand that much, but they still, they still don't believe. And so Jesus warns them. Verse 35, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Jesus calls them to believe, to not waste another moment. And that's the same for us this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or not not sure if you're a Christian, I wonder if you can relate to what he says about walking in darkness and not knowing where you're going. Listen, that's true of every Christian who's here. You can ask any, any Christian, they'll tell you, there was a time when I walked in darkness not knowing where I was going, but Jesus brought light into my life. So I would just encourage you, if you're that non-Christian, to, to come to Jesus. Believe now, believe today, don't. Don't waste any time. But even if you're a believer, there are words for you here. Uh, the, the, the time is now to follow Jesus, to give your life to Jesus fully and completely. I mean, we, we all understand that coming and sitting in a pew on Sunday morning is not equated with living for Jesus. We know that there's more to it than that. And your heart of hearts, you know that. So take this opportunity today to to repent of a half-hearted commitment to Jesus and to fully give your life to him. And and, and to do as he himself modeled for us. To die to yourself. Look, Look back at what Jesus said in verse 25. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am There my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We are called to die daily to ourselves, to our own desire, our sinful desires. We're called to die daily to our own plan for every day. 
if we would, like Jesus, meditate on the glory of God, of, of him being exalted in our lives above all things, we would find that death to be more and more appealing, that death to ourselves. Because we'll see that honoring the Father is greater than anything else. Third and final thing I want us to see from this chapter about Jesus is that he is worthy of belief. Worthy of belief, worthy of trust, worthy of faith. This comes from verse 37 to the end, verse 50. And actually, John anticipates what we're doing right now. John anticipates that as people hear about Jesus and who he is and what he came to do, and as people come to believe in Jesus, that we would then be puzzled by unbelief. That unbelief would more and more, the more we see who Jesus is, the more we would just be almost angry at unbelief. And so what John does is he gives several reasons why unbelief, in the, right, right in Jesus' face, why unbelief happened. Uh, the first one comes as a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 37, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This comes from that same passage uh, that, that Randy read from so wonderfully earlier in the service. Uh, Isaiah 53, that, that powerful picture of a coming suffering servant. This says that people would look on that suffering servant and would not believe. Isaiah 53 predicted that unbelief. That people would not Come to God to understand what was going on, which is, as Randy read, that the servant was dying not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. So that's one reason for unbelief, is that people think they know enough and that they don't need God's help to understand. Second reason that John gives is is because people in, in John's day and in our day too, are still hard-hearted, are stubborn in their unbelief. Look at verse 40, or sorry, 39. This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. These were people whose hearts were hard already. And And these are people who... This happens to everyone. Everybody who hears God's word is changed in one of two ways. Either they move a little bit closer to God or a little bit further away from God. And in their sinful wills, they make that decision. And so God leaves some who willfully rebel against them, against him, and he further hardens their hearts. That was going on too, his hard hearts. But there was a third reason too, among many others. And this one's kind of curious because this is actually shallow belief. That is ultimately unbelief. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many did believe in him among the rulers. 
But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. It wasn't true belief. It was inadequate belief. It was not belief that actually saved them. Because they did not go all the way in their commitment to Jesus. They wouldn't even publicly confess knowing him. So, brothers and sisters, just those are, those are some scary thoughts to think of, those, those, war, those uh, reasons for unbelief. I think we need to remember, we are not immune. You are not immune to unbelief. You are not immune to these temptations to walk away from Jesus. You must daily come to Jesus and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Be like the blind man who says, I once was lost, or I once was blind, but now I see. And I need your help, Lord. Jesus has, throughout his ministry, encountered this unbelief. And so we come in verse 44 to finally this this summary of all that Jesus has done and of of his... uh, um, his reason for coming and dying, and the need for belief. Look at verse 44. The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And so this then ends, beginning right here, that's the end of Jesus' public ministry in John's gospel. This is his last word to the public. Believe in me. Commit to me. Because I've come from the Father. The words I speak are eternal life. I don't judge you now, but on the last day, if you've rejected my words in this life, I will judge you then. My words will judge you then. And condemn you. We find in these words heaviness, seriousness, We can't take lightly Jesus' words. We can't take lightly who he is. We find also hope here. Because if, if you do believe, then there is eternal life offered to you. A life that begins now as you die daily to yourself. It's a hope that endures. It's a hope for all of eternity. If you've rightly understood Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, you will see that it is worth dying every day to yourself. He is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And you'll be just like that man I mentioned at the beginning, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I told you how he got back on a boat uh, and went back to Germany. And through a variety of circumstances, he, he was doing wonderful things. He was, he was doing his best to help Jews to uh, be 
rescued from the hands of the Nazis. He was seeking to encourage Christians. And he, he was even involved in, uh, kind of on the periphery, but is, was even involved in an assassination plot against Hitler. Well, he was eventually arrested and just, I think it was two weeks shy of the arrival of Allied troops, uh, to, or the, the, end, the end of the war in Europe, basically, he was martyred. Bonhoeffer was killed fundamentally because of his commitment to Christ. And we know from a firsthand account that he died with a confidence in Jesus. There was a doctor who was there who said that he had seen, as a doctor, he'd seen over 50 years, he'd seen many people die. But he said this about Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer died entirely submissive to the will of God. Let's learn from that example and and fix our eyes fully on Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we exalt you because you are alive. You taught so clearly about your death, and now we, uh, who are your disciples today, can learn, can understand. We can see what an incredible act of grace and kindness you've given by dying for us in our place on the cross, by achieving atonement for our sins, that all who believe in you are freely and fully forgiven and set free into a life uh, of, of following you that is not even, not even worth comparing to the life of slavery to sin that we would have otherwise. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of worship. You are worthy of our every act of, uh, of praise. You're worthy of us imitating you and following you and dying to ourselves. Lord Jesus, you're worthy of our faith and our trust. Help us to look to your cross and to increase in faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.